Well, welcome to Grace Community Church, and uh, Merry Christmas to all of you, and i um, really glad that you're here. And if you are a guest or visitor, it, we'd love to know about your visit with us, and you can fill out that card and um, let us know that you are here. So we've been in a series called uh, Naturally Supernatural, and in this series, we, we've been talking about living in God's presence as a way of life, and this morning, I'm going to talk about what it means to encounter the Father heart of God as a means of encountering his power. And I'm gonna talk about resting in the Father's unconditional love and we'll, we'll do it from Matthew 1, verses one through seven. So I wanna begin this morning by taking you back to a birthing room on October 7th, 1980. Our firstborn daughter is coming into the world after uh, Cindy is in labor for 14 hours. And you know, once Sarah was born, and Sarah was put in Cindy's arms. The entire atmosphere in the birthing room changed from one of, of pressure to peace. And I can remember Cindy looking into Sarah's eyes in this magical moment where mom is looking at her firstborn child for the first time. It was an amazing thing. And then it was my turn, and Sarah was in my arms, and a lot of times I will think about things to say at special times so that I can, I can say them. And I had something planned to say to Sarah at this special time. I forget what I said. have no clue about what I said. It was a long time ago. But I can remember holding her and, and saying something to her, promises a, a dad to his daughter. Good things, things about the future, things that would bless her, things that would, that would show her that I cared about her. Now I want to do a thought experiment. Imagine we could get into the brain of my daughter at that moment. What's going on in her brain? Little neurons are firing in her uh, amygdala and hippocampus and in her prefrontal cortex. Uh, she is learning things at a fast rate. And there is this hormone that's being secreted called oxytocin. It's a love hormone. And that love hormone is producing in her a category for love before she has the language to even express love. And what happens over the next 24 months is that she is learning the dynamics of love. Now, when I'm holding her, making those promises to her, saying those nice things to her, do I have any expectation that Sarah will say, gee, dad, thank you so much. I hope I'm worthy of all those promises you just made. I will try my best. Did I expect that of her? No way. No way. I was giving her unconditional commitments, unconditional promises. And part of learning to live in the power of the risen Christ is that you learn to live in his unconditional love as a follower of Jesus. You, when you come to Jesus, it takes time to learn how to bond. Because a lot of times we, we come to Christ and, and we have hurts and pains. We don't want to trust anybody. Or we come to Christ and we have misperceptions about God. We come to Christ and we had imperfect relationships with our earthly parents. And now we're calling the God of the universe our Father. And so we have to learn how to bond with the God of the universe. And if we, if we don't learn to bond with the God of the universe, we can be confused about him, we can mistrust him, 
We can misinterpret things that are happening like trials or disciplines as, la as, as lack of his love. So part of what God wants us to do is to learn to bond with the unconditional love of the Father. And one of the great places to see this is in Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, as we look at the genealogy of Jesus. Now, I know that sounds kind of like kind of a crazy thing to do, but I want to tell you that when you think about the genealogy of Jesus, don't just think about the names. Think about the love of the Father who's bringing his son into the world through those names. That's what we want to do. We want to see five marks of the unconditional love of God through the genealogy of Jesus. The first mark that we see is grace. God loves to pour out blessings that we could never earn or deserve. We see that in the first part of the genealogy. This is the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of God, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. This takes us back to Genesis 12, and I want to take you back to 2100 BC. Abraham living in the city of Ur on the banks of the Euphrates River. When Abraham was not yet 30 years old, the God of the universe appears to Abraham with an amazing plan. He says, Abraham, I am going to take you to a whole new place and make a whole new nation out of you. I'm choosing you. Radical proposal. Back then, your identity was wrapped up in your city-state. It was wrapped up in your family, your ancestors. And Abraham is, is hearing something that's going to affect his identity. Maybe Abraham could have said, God, you know, like your plan's kind of vague. And I kind of like what I'm doing here. Thanks, but no thanks. Abraham didn't do that. Abraham said, okay, I'll do it. When you think about why God chose Abraham, is it because he was so good, so moral, so ethical? Was it because his high school yearbook said, most likely to succeed? Did God look down at Abraham and say, that's an awesome guy. I'm going to pick him to start a whole new nation and be the ancestor of the Messiah. Nope, not the reason. He was worshiping false deities at the time. God's choice was totally different. It was based upon grace. When God looks at Abraham, he doesn't say, Abraham's an awesome guy, I'm going to choose him. God says, looking at himself, out of the fullness of my grace, I'm choosing this person who does not deserve to be chosen. Amen. And God chose you for the same reason. When God looked down from heaven, did, did he look down and say, well, isn't that an awesome person there? I think I will choose them to be one of my followers because they're so good. That's not why he did it. Out of the wealth of God's own goodness, he says, I'm choosing this person and this person and this person. And it wasn't just Abraham who was chosen. You know, many times it says God is the father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Judah. Maybe those were awesome people who were really, really good folks, right? No, no, because, you know, Isaac was passive and he had these sin habits that are rather embarrassing when you read the book of Genesis. Same thing was true with Jacob, who had a completely dysfunctional relational style and marriage and family. And then he got Judah, who was a real piece of work. 
And you know, you think, could, could, could God have chosen somebody better? Yeah, probably. There was this guy named Melchizedek who was already living in Jerusalem. Maybe God could have chosen him. Why in the world did God chose Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah? Why? Because God never chooses on the basis of personal worth and merit. God chooses on the basis of grace. And I want you to think about why, about why, why God chose you. It was on the basis of grace. Here's what Paul says. Long ago, even before he made the world, God loved us and he chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. He did this by predestining us to adoption as sons and daughters. I'm not going to explain all the mystery in that. There's a lot of mystery in those words. And it doesn't matter whether you are a good Calvinist or a good Wesleyan. That's what the Bible says. In some mysterious way, you were chosen by the God of the universe because he, he loved you. You were chosen by, by grace. Imagine a, a parent who plans on adopting internationally. These parents have saved up thousands of dollars for the fees and the travel. They're prepared financially, emotionally, relationally, and spiritually. One day the adoption agency calls. Let's say it's from Africa or China or wherever. The adoption agency calls and says, we, we have a child for you. We have an, in, have an infant for you. Okay. Here are five pictures. We're going to send them via email right now. And the parents look at the pictures. Do the parents say, oh, five pictures of the same person. Oh, yes, of course we'll choose that, that little infant in those pictures because we know what a great future this person will have. We know the great IQ this person has. No, they don't do that. They, 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 don't, they don't know about that. They're choosing solely on the basis of grace because they look into themselves. They say, we have all this love to give. We choose you to be our child. That's the God of the universe. That's what he did in your life. So how do you respond to grace? You didn't do anything to deserve his choice. You don't do anything to maintain his love. All he wants you to do is to rest in his choosing love. I'm holding my daughter, Sarah. I'm speaking words of life and blessing to my daughter, Sarah. I'm not saying, come on, come on, come on. I mean, smile, give me a smile at least. She didn't have to do anything. All she had to do was rest. That's all you have to do is rest in his grace. And now we see a, a second picture. First picture was a picture of, mer of grace. The second picture is a picture of mercy. God has mercy on the broken. He has mercy on the outcast. He has mercy on the hurting. God loves to elevate damaged people. So notice how this works. Uh, Matthew 1, verse 3. Jude was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Matthew 1, 5. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth. Verse 6, Jesse was the father of David by David the king. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. This is really completely amazing in a genealogy in the first century to have four women, because women were typically not in genealogies. Women in the first century were, were not at a high status position. They were in a lower, more supportive 
position. And this was a shocking thing to have four women in a genealogy like this. And I want you to notice the mercy that is represented by this. First of all, all four of these women were Gentiles. They were Gentiles. They, they, were, not, they were not Jewish. They came, they came from different backgrounds and different, different cultures. Uh, Rahab and Tamar were both Canaanites. Ruth was, was from Moab. Why would Matthew include Gentile women in genealogy? It's because God is going to have mercy not just on the Jewish people, but on the entire world. And Matthew wants to show us God has mercy on everyone. Nobody escapes the mercy of God. Moreover, each of these women, except one, had a morally questionable past. You know, take Tamar, for instance. Tamar was Judah's daughter-in-law. After her husband died, she was childless. So Tamar concocts an idea. Her idea was this. If I act like a prostitute, maybe I can lure Judah and have kids with him and he'll be part of his line. Those kids will be part of his line. Like, where did that idea come from? That's a crazy idea. But she did it. Tamar has two children, Perez and Zerah. And so in Tamar's background, you've got deception, prostitution, incest, all three. And yet she is the recipient of mercy. And then you have the story of Rahab, who's a prostitute living in Jericho. She believes in the infinite personal God of Israel. She, she realizes he's the God of the universe. She places her faith in him. And when Jericho is defeated, she's saved. God gives her mercy. And then it's the same with Bathsheba. Bathsheba is pregnant with David. And uh, God has mercy on her. And the line of succession goes through Bathsheba, not the rest of the wives. Why is that? Because God loves to pour out mercy on the broken, the hurting, the downcast, and those who are in pain. That's the way God, God loves you. And these stories, you know, were, were very well known to Matthew's readers. You know, if Matthew wanted to sanitize the genealogy of Jesus and say, you know, Jesus was awesome and I'll prove it to you by eliminating all bad people of the genealogy, he could have done it, but he didn't do it. He included four Gentile women to show that God has mercy and he pours out his love by pouring out mercy. And so, if you want to encounter the love of God, periodically, you've got to do the same thing. You've got to realize from where you came. So Paul tells us uh, that we should do this in 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11. He says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor those who practice homosexuality, or thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, the Corinthians, you know, all had been involved at some level in those things, that lifestyle. And so Paul says, and such were some of you. Don't forget, Corinthians, that you were involved in a lifestyle that was opposed to God. And God showed you mercy. And one of the ways that you rekindle your love for God is by remembering the mercy that God had on your life. Because it's really easy for Christians to get... A little uppity 
been a Christian for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, you know, I'm, I'm pretty awesome. I didn't have any problems. I'm going to minimize my problems from my past. They were a little embarrassing. I'm going to gloss over those. And when you start glossing over this, the things from which you were saved, your love for God begins to erode. Pride is like, is like a callus over your heart that prevents your heart from bursting forth with love. Jesus puts it this way. He says, you know, he who is forgiven little loves little. He who is forgiven much loves much. Well, we've all been forgiven much, and we need to get in touch with that for, from which we've been forgiven in order to rekindle our love for God. So we've seen mercy and grace so far. Now the next character quality is kindness. You know, God shows his love toward us and pouring out mercy, pouring out grace. Now we see how he pours out kindness. God is patient with people even during very long seasons of, of sin. So now we have lots of names. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. Joram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. And Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Well, to understand God's kindness, I've got to give you some background. After Solomon's reign, uh, the kingdom of Israel like, goes really poorly. A darkness descends upon the land. And first of all, the nation was fractured in two. You had the northern kingdom in which there were 10 tribes. You had the southern kingdom in which there were two tribes. The northern kingdom had 19 kings before it was destroyed. Every king was bad. The southern kingdom had 20 kings and only eight were good. And the root problem was idol worship. They were all worshiping idols. The entire culture was worshiping idols. And Israel was thinking, well, they're doing it. Why can't we do it? They worship idols so that they'll have crops and cattle and children. Why shouldn't we worship idols? Because we can have crops and cattle and children. So they begin to worship lots and lots of idols. And during that time, you wonder, how patient is God going to be? Because they were doing horrible things, even to the point where they were sacrificing their children to the demon god Molech. Like, how patient is God going to be? And perhaps you've looked back on your life and, and you see whole seasons where you think, wow. Like, I was way away from God during that time. What was I thinking? Might have been a week, might have been a month, might have been a year, might have been a decade, might have been 30 years, might have been a long time. Just how patient is God going to be? Is God ever going to say, I'm done? I'm done with you. It's been a week. It's been 30 years. I'm done with you. Would God ever do that? Well, just how kind is God going to be? Now, I want you to notice what happens in this section right here. It's really pretty, uh, pretty amazing because there are three things going on. First, first picture is that the, kingdoms, the kingdom is divided, north and south. And then the smaller picture is that Judah's kings are divided between good and bad. And then the third thing that's going on is that even the best king, King David, his heart was divided. 
So this, these verses are a picture of division, divided kingdom, divided kings, divided king's heart. And what Matthew's trying to say is even when our heart is divided against God, God is patient with us, God is kind with us, and he's willing to wait Amen. for us to get it. So our idols are not the primitive old-fashioned kind. I doubt any of you have little idols that you bow down to in your house. Our idols are the modern kind. Idols of fame, fame, likes on Facebook, idols of, idols of getting our message out there. Look, I'm all for social media. I love social media. I have a Facebook account. But how many times have we, have we thought, oh, I could be really famous if I do this? We have idols. We have idols of entertainment. We have idols of conspicuous consumption. We have idols of good things that can become God's substitutes. Family can be God's substitute. Work can be a God's substitute. There's acceptable things that can become idols. Why doesn't God instantly judge you and say, okay, it's been a week. I'm done with you. It's been a month. I'm done with you. Why? Because his kindness does something. And here's what it does. His kindness leads us to repentance. As we reflect upon the kindness of God, we realize, God, you are so good. You are so patient. You are so kind. Did you ever, ever have a friend who forgave you? And doesn't that make your heart go out to your friend all the more? Yes, or a parent who forgave you and your heart goes out to the parent all the more? Or a child who forgave you? The kindness of a friend leads us to enhanced love. Interesting article, according to the Dartmouth Health Letter, the kindness of a parent toward a child produces oxytocin in the child, increasing trust and boosting optimism. The kindness of God toward you has an impact. It can enhance and increase your love. That leads us to a fourth picture. And the fourth picture is the picture of promise. God loves to make promises and keep promises as a, as a proof of his love. Matthew 1.12, after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah became the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel was the father of Abihud. So now we have, we have the deportation to Babylon. Israel experienced 70 years of captivity. It was horrible. I've mentioned that quite a bit in uh, our recent series. Israel was taken from their land, transported to Babylon, and they were there for 70 years. And they lived in Babylon with no hope. Or did they have hope? Actually, they did have hope because God had given some pretty amazing promises. Jeremiah 25, 11, this whole land will be a desolation and a horror. And these nations will serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. Then it will be when 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon. So here they are in Babylon, and there's no hope, humanly speaking, except that God, God has given them some promises about what's to come after 70 years. Another promise, Jeremiah 29, 10, for thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and listen to this, I will fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place, and then now we have the most popular verse in the Bible. 
If you search gateway.com, the most popular verse, I think it was 2018, 2019, was this one, Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope. So the context for that wonderful promise is that there's no hope, humanly speaking, but there are the promises of God. And in the promises of God, we have hope. Even we have no hope, humanly speaking. So enter the prophet Daniel. Uh, one day, about 65 years into their captivity, Daniel is reading these things from the prophet Jeremiah. He comes across the promises that I just have been reading, and he begins to pray, God, I pray that you would make your promises come through. Come true. Well, let me ask you a question. Do you need to pray about God's promises coming true? If God, if God has made a promise, do you need to say, Lord, I pray that you fulfill your promise? Do you need to do that? Well, yes and no. God can certainly fulfill his promises apart from your prayers. But why are prayers about promises so important? Because they enhance and they build our, our love. God gives promises so that, number one, we will fellowship with him in the midst of those promises. And what Daniel is doing is he's fellowshipping with God in the midst of promises that were laid down in Jeremiah. And so that we'll build a love relationship with him as he fulfills those promises. Because what happens if we fellowship with God in the midst of promises and those promises come true? We say, God, you're amazing. You made promises 70 years ago, and now these promises have come true, and now I'm, I'm seeing all the more how great you are and how much you love me and how much, how much you care for me. And then what happens is the Babylonian king is defeated, the Persian king rises to power, the Persian king sends people back to Israel, and now you know we have this new temple. So God loves to make promises. Think about the promises that he made about his Messiah. Here's a promise. The Messiah is going to be born of a woman, Genesis 3.15. Here's another one. The Messiah will come from a nation, Israel, not even founded yet. Here's another one. Genesis 21, the Messiah will come through the line of Isaac. Numbers 24.7, the Messiah is going to come through Jacob. Well, let's narrow it down a little bit more. Jacob had 12 sons. Genesis 49.10 says the Messiah will come through Judah. Let's narrow it down a little bit more. Isaiah 11, the Messiah will come through the family line of Jesse, but Jesse had a bunch of kids. So Jeremiah 25 verse 3 tells us the Messiah will come through David, Jesse's youngest son. You see the promises now? Promises about the coming of, of the Messiah. Micah 5.2 tells us the Messiah will be born in the city of Bethlehem. Isaiah 7.14 tells us the Messiah will be, will be born of a virgin. God layers promise upon promise upon promise upon promise upon promise so that we will fellowship with him in the midst of those promises. And then when we see those promises coming true, we love him all the more because he's a promise maker and a promise keeper. You know, the heart of a father is to, to do that. So, you know, we had four kids, Sarah, Kristen, Caleb, and Jared. And with each of those kids, you know, Cindy and I made promises. And I can remember stating some of those promises to my kids. 
And what, what was my impulse in doing that? Because it's the impulse of a mom and a dad who have unconditional love. It's their impulse now to pass on that unconditional love to their children and their friends and their family members. And that's the heart of your father. The heart of your father is he wants to make promises to you so that you'll fellowship with him and miss those promises. And then when those promises come true, you say, God, I love you. You're awesome. You're amazing. And I'm glad I know you. And then the final picture is, is the picture of the impossible. God redeems painful seasons even when redemption seems absolutely impossible. Um, so <clears throat> um, Matthew 1.16, Matthew 1.16 um, tells us, or it, actually it's 1.11, the last king before the exile is a guy by the name of Jeconiah. Um, Jeconiah is a difficult guy to identify because he goes by three names. He goes by Jehoiachin, Jeconiah, or Coniah. How many of you go by different names? You have different aliases, you know? I mean, people call me William. They call me Rod. Uh, my grandchildren call me Papa. They have another name for me that I won't tell you. Um, some of you know what that name is. Slightly embarrassing. Um, so Jehoiachin is, uh, they all, these names all refer to the same guy. So Jehoiachin came to the, to the throne at the age of, of 18, reigned for three months, and then he was defeated by Nebuchadnezzar. And here's what it says, Jehoiachin, or Jeconiah, did evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father had done. All right, so what did, what did his dad do? Uh, well, Jehoiakim, his dad, did evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his fathers had done. What did they do? Well, they were all involved in idolatry. And so now God is going to say that Jehoiachin has, has got a bad consequence for what he did. Write down this man Jehoiachin, or Jeconiah, write him down as childless, a man who will not prosper in his days, for no man of his descendants will prosper sitting on the throne of David or ruling again in Judah. Uh-oh, now we've got a big problem. Because the line of Jesus goes through that guy. And so you read this and you go, wait a second, did God just like shoot himself in his foot, in the foot? Be because now it seems as if Jesus cannot be the Messiah because he's coming through the line of this guy who God says through Jeremiah, well, no man of his descendants is going to prosper. Well, that would seem to mean that Jesus is not going to prosper on the throne of David because of what this guy Jehoiachin did. But here's where God does the impossible. Jeho this does not say Jehoiachin won't have kids. It says Jehoiachin might as well not be childless because no descendant of his will ever be the king. Well, then how do we get Jesus as being the king? Virgin birth. Virgin birth. Because Jesus is not the physical offspring of this guy. He is the legal offspring, but not the physical offspring. Because Jesus is virgin born. And Joseph is a stepdad. So God, God makes it absolutely impossible 
for somebody from this line to be king unless a miracle occurs. And guess what? A miracle occurs. Isaiah 4, 7, 14, which was so wonderfully read by us this morning. God pulls off the miracle of the virgin birth so that the promise to the Messiah could continue. Who but God can do that? And God does the same thing in your life as well. When things seem hopeless, how many times in your life when things have seemed utterly hopeless has God pulled off a miracle? And you thought, wow, who but God could have done that? Who but God could have orchestrated that meeting? Who but God could have engineered that healing? Who but God could have made these two people come together with a kind of timing that happened when they came together? Who but God could have done that? I just finished reading the amazing book about Pastor Brunson, who was in prison in Turkey. And there was just an amazing part of this book where these people come together at just the right time so that he can be released. Who but God could do that? The God who loves you as father loves to do the impossible in your life and display his love through the impossible. So let's finish with some takeaways on treasuring the unconditional love of God. First of all, first takeaway, periodically we have got to repent of our orphan mindset. Sometimes we get into this deal where we have this orphan spirit, this orphan mindset. And the orphan mindset is a mindset that says, nobody's really for me. Nobody really appreciates me. Nobody really likes me. If they pretend to like me, they wouldn't if they really knew me. And this is something that everybody goes through. Everybody goes through. I've seen little kids who are wonderful little kids who've got great moms and dads, little kids who make a mistake and they say, I'm an idiot, nobody likes me. That orphan mindset is part of being a fallen human being. And that orphan mindset is behind many arguments among friends and many marital arguments where a, a husband or a wife will be angry at the other person because they feel like the other person is not giving them the love that they deserve. And it's an orphan mindset. They're putting their, their hunger for love onto their spouse. That does not work. Your spouse is not equipped to give you the unconditional love that only God can give you. Amen. Your friends do not have the ability to give you the unconditional love that only God can give you. So that orphan mindset causes us to have arguments among our spouses, arguments among our friends and partners. The orphan mindset can become an obsession. Nobody loves me. Nobody cares about me. And then it becomes an addiction. And we just slouch down into this angry sense of entitlement. That's an orphan mindset. And periodically, we've got we've to repent of that orphan mindset because the orphan mindset is a lie. When you're, when you're in Christ, the orphan mindset is, is a lie. The moment you came to Christ, the love of the Father was poured out upon you. You are now adopted into the family of God. You are now forgiven of all your sins. Your weaknesses now become a pathway into strength. Your sins and mistakes now are in the process of being recycled. You've got the resource of the Holy Spirit to empower relationships. You have an enlightened mindset that allows you to see the mind of God. You are not fundamentally an orphan like you were before. 
And you can live in this new mindset that is the exact opposite of the orphan mindset. But periodically, we gotta say, okay, orphan mindset, I'm gonna call it what it is. I'm gonna repent of this orphan mindset. God, I repent of this, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna avail myself of your love. And that's, that's the next thing he wants us to do. Be quick to receive the unconditional love of God. I had a mentor a number of years ago who said, who said the most important four words that you can say every day are these four words. Father, I love you. Whether you feel it or not, whether you're sensing it or not, Father, I love you. Father, I adore you. Father, I enjoy you. Father, I'm satisfied with you. That's a five-word statement. It's, it's that idea where, where you are affirming your love for the Father. And you do this a zillion times a day. Where you're, that's that's your, your gateway phrase into fellowshipping with the Father. Father, I love you. Father, I adore you. Father, I recommit myself to you. Father, you're awesome. Father, you're there for me. It's making those loving affirmations to the Father. Now, that also means that you need to be quick to receive it the other way, where you say something like this, Father, I receive your love. Father, I embrace your love. Father, what, what you just did is an example of your love. So here, here's a phrase that I, I use for me. I wish I had written this down on the PowerPoints. I, the phrase that I use is, Rod, don't be oblivious to the obvious. Don't be oblivious to the obvious. Because sometimes God's love is obvious, and I'm oblivious to it. There's sometimes I'm going around along in spiritual autopilot. God is pouring out this loving thing and that loving thing and this loving thing over here and that loving thing, and I'm just driving along, you know, not even sensing the love of God, you know, and I'm oblivious to the obvious. Don't be oblivious to the obvious. God is working daily to pour out his love, and God is highly glorified when your antenna are up and you're going, there's an example, and there's an example, and there's an example, and there's an example, and Father, I receive this example of your love right now. So, in a little way, I was with our, Cindy and I were with our grandkids this past week, and um, I'm, I am at the grocery store buying something, and I turn the corner, and one of my grandchildren were, just happened to be there. I didn't, I, I went alone. But, but there he is, little Bo Eastland. And he says, Papa, what are you doing here? He ran up and gave me a hug. Now, how, how can I interpret that? Huh, coincidence. No big deal. No biggie. Happens to people. Or I can say, Father, what, what a delightful example of your love for me this morning. Thank you for that. Don't be oblivious to the obvious outpouring of God's love. Amen. One quick story, and we'll close. A couple was vacationing in a cabin on the lake. They had three kids, six, four, and two. The four-year-old was down at the dock, and he fell in. The oldest child ran up to the father who was up at the house. He's fallen in. 
Father runs down, jumps in the water. It's murky. He brushes up against his son, and he finds that his son is wrapped around the piling in three, three feet of water, wrapped around the piling underwater. The father has to pull him off the piling, get up onto the dock, perform CPR, and he comes to. The father says to this little four or five-year-old, what happened? And he said, Dad, I was just like holding onto the dock, waiting for you because I knew you'd come. I knew you'd come. And he came, the dad came, and that's the father. He loves you like that. This Christmas, embrace that love and delight in it. Let's stand for a closing prayer.